Hey, it's me again. Um, and you're probably thinking, hey, two episodes in a, few, in a matter of days, Alex, what's going on? Do you have coronavirus? Um, no, I don't have coronavirus. Thanks for asking. I hope you don't have it either. Um, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know, I guess. I actually, I do know why I'm releasing two episodes in a matter of days. And it's because I just finished my final essays for the semester. So that's pretty good. And now I've got a lot of time and I don't know what to do. Um, I guess. Yeah. If you, if you know some stuff that's good to do with your time that one can do with their time, send me that stuff. Um, that'd be nice. Um, yeah, I met, I met a a new human, um, in the library and, and they said, Hey, I know a really good place where you can unwind. And I said, Oh yeah. And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, are you going to tell me where? And they said, no, no, I, because if I tell you, there's a risk that you'll tell other people and then it won't be a place to unwind again. And that was probably one of the most crushing experiences of my life. Um, and, um, yeah, I just wanted to, um, I just wanted a kind of social pressure to somehow get back to that person so they can tell me where that place was, because I feel like that's what I need in my life. Um, yeah. Anyway, how are you going? Um, how are you going amid this, this, uh, kind of, um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff happening. I guess it's the 1st of February and officially, um, Brexit, Brexit, officially Brexit, um, Brexited. It's done. Um, yeah. What else? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, um, I've got a few interviews lined up, which is going to be really cool. Um, oh yeah. I remember in the last episode, I responded to some feedback about how my introduction bits are a bit too rambly. Even my mom, my mom sent me a message saying, Alex, shut up, man. You're you're talking for too long in, in the introduction. She said, keep it to one minute, mom. Um, yeah, well, if, if this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, hi, my name's Alex. This is my podcast. I talk about things. Um, I talk about, uh, yeah, I talk about things. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess today, um, today I am going to do an episode by myself because I really like doing that. Um, because I'm an introvert and I don't like other people. Um, no, that's, that's not true. Um, because, because I, I wanted to share an interesting, uh, way of thinking about the world with you. Um, and it's something that, yeah, that I've thought a lot about recently, um, and done a lot of research on because I decided to turn it into a paper to write, uh, for, um, university. Um, so yeah, I guess, yeah. So, um, this, this episode is going to be about, um, this thing. And before I tell you about that thing, I'd like to tell you one other thing. And that other thing is if you're enjoying the podcast, know that I will never, ever, ever have ads for it because I'm not a sucker. I'm not a bad, I'm not a bad dude and bad people are into advertising. And sorry if you've done an advertising degree. Um, you're not, I'm sure you're not intrinsically bad, but maybe there's a little bit of bad air around you. You know, you walk into a room and people are like, what's that bad air? Um, sorry if you, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, uh, um, polarize my audience. Um, I love you all regardless of your support of advertising or not. Um, but yeah, I'm never going to have advertising. So, um, I rely on, on your support as listeners. And that means that, um, can you please fucking support the podcast. Um, you can do so in a number of ways. Um, you can do so via Patreon. I'm sure you all know what Patreon is. It's pretty cool. Allows you to become a patron. So every time I release an episode, I guess you pledge, um, you pledge a little bit of money and that's cool. Cause that will keep the show going. It means I'll be able to spend more time researching, preparing, um, editing, you know, or you can do so via PayPal, but I don't know. PayPal is pretty, 
uh, it doesn't feel, it feels way too transactional. But if you like PayPal, if you really like Elon Musk, then use PayPal. If you don't like Elon Musk, then use Patreon. Um, if you have any questions, email me contact at alex.co. And that's also my website, alex.co, where you can find a lot of other resources and things. Um, yeah. So now back to the, th- the first thing that I wanted to tell you, which was what this episode is about. And um, it is about... Um, okay, so where do I begin? Um, in philosophy of mind, which is the philosophy of mind... Um, and a fair enough question to ask would be, what is philosophy of mind? And to answer your question, I don't really know, but I guess it's the philosophy of like, um, about like experience, conscious experience of things and like how, how, what it means to be an agent in the world, um, whether we have free will, whether we don't, um, these are also questions, especially free will determinism of cognitive science. Um, but also consciousness and that kind of stuff. They're, they're all questions of philosophy of mind. Um, and one thing that I only realized was a big problem um, was the problem of other minds. And so the title of this episode, um, Does Anyone Else Exist? Question mark. Um, is It's a question about like... Um, whether we can have justified belief, whether we can ever be justified in believing that there is another conscious experiencing mind outside of our own. Um, and that might sound really silly because, um, like you can, you can look around the room that you're in, or if you're like me and you're a recluse and there's no one else in the room, um, you don't have any evidence of other minds, but like, Maybe you're on public transport or maybe you're in a cafe or something. Um, Maybe, hey, you know what? Maybe send me a message and tell me what kind of space you're in right now because it'd be really interesting to hear what places people are in, in like geographically, but also like socially when they listen to this podcast because I don't know. Like, I don't know where people listen to it. Maybe they listen to it. Someone told me that they listen to it while they're falling asleep and like that's kind of nice, but... I don't know, like, like they said that it helps them fall asleep. And I didn't know whether that was like a compliment or an insult, whether like what I say is so devoid of any kind of cognitive um, demand that you can just, it kind of like sedates you and you fall asleep. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Maybe I, I hope that's, I hope that's not why, but yeah, like, I guess, let me know, send me, say, hey, like, on, on Instagram, all of you, fucking look at your phone, send me a message on Instagram, hey, I'm in a cafe in New York City, Alex, you're a fool, send me that right now, um, because that'd be nice, even if you're a stranger, please, please, I know there are, what's nice about having a podcast is that the more episodes you release, I guess, the more likely it is that people are going to people you don't know are going to be able to listen to it. Um, and there are lots of people who listen to it, Uh, not, well, not lots. Um, but you know, there are, uh, there's more than one, more than me and my mom. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, please send me a message. If you're a stranger, tell me, tell me what's going on. Tell me, tell me, tell me everything. Anyway, the thing that I was talking about before was if you're looking for evidence of another experiencing conscious mind other than yourself I guess you can look at someone and you can and when I say someone I mean like a person um you can look at a person and um you can think about whether they are engaging with the world in a way that you would engage with the world like do they cut bread and then put it in their mouth or do they cut bread and then throw it out the window or do they cut the knife with the bread or like, I don't know, are they doing stuff the way you do it? If they are, maybe you can treat that as evidence that it's coming from a conscious mind like your own. Um, that's one thing. That's called the argument from analogy. And I'm going to talk about that. So the argument from analogy is that we, we have evidence of 
other people existing, other conscious minds existing, based on the analogies that we can draw from their behavior. So um, if someone, when we go to the park and we see people having picnics and stuff, and we think, oh, I like to have picnics, and then we see people having a picnic and we think, yep, okay, I know what it's like for them to want to have a picnic, so I think I'm justified in believing that they have a mind. Um, okay, next, okay, 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 so that that's the argument from analogy. Um, I'm going to try and keep this, I say this every time, I'm going to try and keep this episode relatively short, um, like actually short though, like, I don't know, I haven't, as usual, I don't, I don't plan, um, which is good and bad, um, but I hope it's about half an hour, so another 20 minutes. Um, by that time, hopefully you're sedated and asleep, um, and it doesn't matter what I say. Um, uh, yeah, okay, so one thing that, one way that we can think about, okay, so wait, just, just so I can, just so we're all on the same page. When I say, does anyone else exist, what I mean is, is there any way we can actually be sure that there is an experiencing mind in anyone else's head? Because, like, I guess Descartes, um, Rene Descartes, the French philosopher all those years ago, said, um, I think, therefore I am. Um, and we can interpret that as a claim that, like, I guess that that has been the foundation of many philosophers' beliefs and claims that um, they... Wow, there's a really loud helicopter. Um, they... So when, when I say, I think, therefore I am, my knowledge of my actual thinking is evidence of a mind, is evidence of my own mind. But obviously, I have a really intimate... I have really intimate access to what's happening in my head. Um, a kind of access that other people, that I don't have to other people's brains. Um, I don't know what it feels like for them to think. I can guess, I can say, hey, maybe it's what it's like for me. Anyway, so the question is, um, how, how can we have, what will allow us to be justified in believing that there is another mind that there are that other people experience things the way that I do, that other people actually have minds the way I have a mind. Um, okay, so one way, the first thing I'll do, firstly, I'll talk about the argument from analogy. So what I spoke about before, can we rely on behavior, the observable behavior of others, to um, to argue that they have a mind? So can I say that because that person is acting like me? I can attribute them a mind. The next thing I'll talk about is this thing called the conceptual problem. Um, and this is a challenge to the actual asking of the question. Um, and this is kind of what a lot of people in philosophy do. Um, they, so like, yeah, a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of the time in philosophy, um, one thing you can do when you're challenging an argument is challenge whether you can actually ask that kind of question. Um, one thing you can do is argue that um, it's that the, the, the problem that we actually have is being able to conceive, that is, being able to envisage, conceptually uh, craft an image of another mind that isn't our own. So, like, is it... I guess this is really a problem an issue of subjectivity. Um, can I move beyond the constraints of my subjective experience of the world? Um, that's the second thing I'll look at. And then the third thing I'll look at is something that I did in my essay, which is I suggested an answer to the question. And I call this um, the practical argument. Um, and yeah, I guess I'll, I'll get to that when I get to that. But um, I guess you can probably tell from um, the title that I gave it, the practical argument, what I'm going to suggest. So, okay. Um, I hope that's clear. I hope that's clear. Um, all right. So let's, let's begin with the, um, the argument from analogy. 
Okay, so as I said before, the argument from analogy um, is goes something along these lines. Um, it goes, I can be justified in believing that another is experiencing things the way that I do, or that another has a mind the way I do, because I act in a particular way, and I know that the way that I act is evidence of a mind that is productive of behavior. So when I see the behavior of others that I can recognize, I can trace that behavior back to a mind, because it has to come from a mind. Where else can the behavior come from? Um, so if you didn't, if that was, that was pretty quick, so go back 15 seconds, listen to it again, keep listening to it until you understand what I'm actually saying. So I'll just repeat it one more time. The argument from analogy suggests that when I, I can observe someone else's behavior and make a conclusion about them having a mind, because I know that the behavior I do is being produced by a mind, uh, my mind. Okay. So now that we've got the actual argument. So what I said before, let's think about what that means. Um, so the argument from analogy means that whenever I see someone, whenever I see someone, okay, so I'll, I'll stop there. This is the first, at least one thing that I think is a problem with the argument from analogy is that it always wants to trace recognizable behavior to a mind. And so when I say someone, the reason why I hesitate is because we, in 2020, we are getting dangerously close to the idea of someone changing. Um, so in the last episode I did, I interviewed a, an ethicist um, about the ethics of artificial intelligence. And if you listen to that episode, um, there were some pretty remarkable things that were said. Um, like in the next 100 years, we're probably going to have um, super AI, which is like, like, you know, way beyond the power, has way beyond the power of um, the, the cognitive processing power of um, humans. And I guess at the moment, the AI we have, it's mostly only good at very specific things it's like pattern recognition, you know, you know, like on when you go on when you log into some websites and they make you do that recapture thing where it's like, click on all the fucking traffic lights you see. And then it verifies that you're not a robot. Um, what you're actually doing amazingly is training Google's AI to recognize signal uh, traffic lights and stuff. So when it says like pick a motorbike and you select all the motorbikes, when you get it right, that's because Google's AI is also getting it right. So what you're doing is training it to be better and better. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, but we in in the interview I had with Sanjay, so the last uh, the last episode, episode 16, maybe 17? I'm not sure, 16. I don't know, ethics of AI, whatever. Um, we moved on to the topic of um, uh, like making very human-looking robots. And... Again, so what I what I hesitate the word that I'm that I, I'm stumbling over is the word someone, um, and I think a problem with the argument from analogy is that it means that we will always have to attribute a mind to something that looks like a someone, so something that looks like a person, um, and so I guess there is this weird phenomenon called the uncan uncanny valley. Um, you should look it up on Wikipedia, but I guess it's a phenomenon about the, uh, about, it tries to draw a relationship between the amount of discomfort a person feels, a real person, not a robot, and the strain, the, you know how, like, some movies have really bad, um, like, vert, like, AI, uh, no, what, what's it called? Um, CGI, computer generated images. They have really bad, like they have really unrealistic faces or something is not right. That something not being right generates a feeling in us. And the uncanny valley, whatever that phenomenon is, refers to, it, it tries to measure the relationship between like 
how much, how unhuman a CGI thing looks and how uncomfortable we feel. And it tries to kind of um, have two axes and draw like, I don't know, some kind of line measuring feeling of discomfort and, um, and, un, and like unhuman lookingness of things. So anyway, the problem that I have, which I guess should have hopefully has come through quite clearly in my various different tangents that I've taken. The problem I have is that when, if we have like, if I'm walking down the street and I see a robot. Okay. Okay. So let's, let me change the scenario. If you are walking down the street and I, I know you're walking down the street, right? And I get this robot and I put it kind of 10 meters, I don't know how many yards, whatever measuring system you use. Let's say, yeah, 10 meters in front of you. You don't see me putting the robot there and you don't know that it's a robot. And I have programmed the robot to do one thing and one thing only, to drop a pen, bend down, pick up the pen and stand back up. And in the time I've programmed it so that in the time that that happens, you will have seen the robot drop the pen seeing it pick it up you won't have been close enough to pick it up yourself and you will you will have walked past um so under the argument from analogy um we have to you have to attribute a mind to that thing and so you don't know that it's a robot i do because i made it i programmed the robot to do that but as someone who doesn't know that it's a robot the argument from analogy makes you attribute a mind to that robot and now if you've listened, so I guess you should, you should go back and listen to the previous episode. It's going to help you understand why this might be problematic. Um, because if you attribute a mind to a robot, um, presumably it's a human for you. You're going to treat it like a human. Um, now we, as, as a species, we need to think about this. We need to think about what it means to attribute a human mind to something, um, to a robot. Is it still a robot? Um, I don't know. I would say that in, in the situation that I just presented you with, so there's a thing that has one function. It can only pick up a pen. Let's say if you manage to pick up the pen in time, let's say you're a person who really wants to pick up pens and you run over and pick up the pen. Like maybe you would notice that the AI, that it was a robot, that it wasn't a real person because it wouldn't know what to do. It wouldn't have been programmed. It can only pick up pens off the ground that it's dropped itself. But none of that happens. So obviously these are very specific circumstances, but this pokes a hole through the argument from analogy, because I would say that at least my definition of a mind is something that is complex and can do more things than just pick up a pen. If you think that something that has a mind can pick up a pen, then can only needs to be able to pick up a pen. Then I, I don't know. Um, I feel like that isn't a, um, broad and sophisticated enough definition of mind. Um, okay. And at that, so where we got to was, yeah. Okay. So now where we're up to is a challenge to the argument from analogy, um, on the grounds that one, we have to attribute a mind to everything, including things that shouldn't be attributed minds, like a robot. Um, a robot that only has one purpose, maybe more complex robots. It would be more convincing. I'd be more convinced if they could do more stuff. Um, but also, there's another issue. How many times do we have to see someone or something act in a way like we would act? for us to be convinced that that thing has a mind. So if I'm walking down the street and I see all of these people around me, if I see, okay, if I see two people walking towards me and I, they're in my line of sight for 15 seconds, is 15 seconds enough time for me to attribute them an actual mind? Um, and like, please, at this point, don't, don't completely disregard this argument because I, I really didn't like the problem of other minds. I thought it was a non-problem. I just thought that we have to assume that, or that it's intuitive. Other people have minds, but like, hopefully as we move through these arguments, you'll see that it's not that clear. Um, 
that we in fact don't, we maybe don't have as much to rely on as we like to think we have. Uh, as, yeah, we don't have as much strength behind the justifications for believing in other minds as we think we do. Um, so like, is 15 seconds of observing two strangers walking towards me enough for me to attribute them another mind? Maybe they're doing a lot more than this robot. Maybe they're walking. Maybe one of them trips over and gets back up and is talking to the other person. Maybe one is kind of texting. I mean, that's a lot of fine motor movements. You have to move your thumbs. I don't know. Um, but like, once they're out of my line of sight, do I need to verify that they're, that they have minds again by seeing them behave again? Um, and I guess the reason why I... I'm asking this is because we need to think about whether... Okay, so in the last... Again, you, you need to go back and listen to the last episode if you haven't, because we talk there about the treatment of artificially created things, like AI. We, sp we speak about the treatment of AI. Um, if, if something... Okay, like here we get to a kind of like really murky and like uncomfortable ethical question um i'm just going to ask it i don't want to answer it because yeah I, I i don't i don't i don't want to answer it but um if something if we aren't convinced that something has a mind how do we treat it um and uh, yeah so like i guess the argument from analogy is helpful because it allows us to say okay i've seen something behave like me it's probably it probably has a mind like me but where it kind of um i guess where it falls short is that um it assumes it, it just it makes us take um it makes us take any kind of example of behavior like our own as being evidence of a mind and maybe that's maybe that's how things should be um because maybe that's all we need maybe that's all we need for a successful engagement and interaction with the world and in fact that's actually what i believe um at the moment i think that's what i believe so i'm going to talk about that when i talk about the thing that the third thing so the practical argument and i i mentioned that earlier in terms of the plan of how things are going to flow um Okay, so that's the argument from analogy. So where we're at is it seems like if we treat anything if we treat anything as having as if we if we draw conclusions about things having minds like our own based on behavior that's like our own, it seems like we're going to run into problems where things look like us and um behave like us. Um, yeah, and I guess another thing to think about is like the anthropomorphizing of things. Anthropo anthropomorphization? I don't know. Um, so like when we attribute human, when we look for the humanness in things. So like what happens if we're walking down the street? So this is, this is actually a serious question. Don't laugh. What happens if we're walking down the street and there's no one around apart from this big tree and the leaves of the tree rustle together in such a way that they produce a coherent sentence in a language that we understand. Do we then attribute a mind to the tree? See where see the problem with the uh, the argument from analogy. It means that like, I guess, I guess it it doesn't. At least in the accounts of it that I've read by philosophers, none of them have said like we need to use some kind of practical reasoning like. If it's a tree, then presumably it doesn't have a mind like a human being. Um, and I, but I guess like the problem with one of the problems with philosophy of mind is that it's trying to establish, it's trying to answer questions from their base. So without having to appeal to any other kind of like, I don't know, critical faculties or any other kind of ideas outside of like the mind itself. But I think, yeah, as we'll see, I think that's a problem. And I think that's why, like, some of these arguments, like the argument from analogy, need to be combined with something else, like practicality. Um, because otherwise we'll end up thinking that, um, you know, uh, 
pens, trees, whatever, these things have human minds. Or that that's what we're led to believe under the argument from analogy. Okay, so the next thing we need to think about is the conceptual problem. Um, so if if let's say we like if we like the argument from analogy, if we think that we can attribute behavior the behavior of others, if we can trace that back to a thinking mind, what does that actually mean for us? What does that mean for me? So if I see my housemate walking around the house, I don't know, doing stuff, um, packing their bag, and I th- I think, oh yeah, I could do that. I Actually, I, I do that. I pack my bag. They probably have a mind because they're probably thinking about what they need to put in their bag for the rest of the day. I do that as well. Um what does it actually mean for me to say that that person has a mind? How can I actually think about them having a mind? And that's where we get to the conceptual problem. Um, are we actually able to conceive of a mind at all? To, of a mind outside of our own at all? Um, it's even, it's really, it's hard to conceive of our own mind, let alone the mind of other, the minds of others. Like, if I if I try and think about what it means for me to have a mind, I I don't even I really don't know where to begin. I guess all it means for me to have a mind is that thing that Descartes said, I think therefore I am. So like the only evidence that I have for myself of me having a mind is that I'm able to think. And thinking obviously includes I don't know um Think like I have memories, I have experiences, I have I don't know whatever all kinds of all kinds of stuff going on. Um, okay, so the conceptual problem: um, how do we conceive of another mind, and does this actually get in the way of us answering the question of whether other people, whether other minds exist, whether other people exist? Um, okay, so if Okay, so Laurie Paul, L.A. Paul, um, she's a philosopher of mind. And I interviewed her. I think it's the second or third interview of the show. You should go back and listen um, or listen afterwards or something. But her um, most famous theory, I guess, is this thing called the transformative experience. Um, And she argues that... We will never be able to ha- we will never be able to be justified in believing anything until we have actually experienced that thing. So that that sounds pretty confusing, but I guess the example that she gives is like, um, if I want to go if I want to go and do a master's degree, I don't know what that master's degree is going to do to me. I don't know how it's going to transform me. I don't know what ways it will make me think about the world. I can only speculate. And so really, I'm in this strange kind of um, limbo phase where I have to kind of hope, I don't know, make an educated guess. But really, there's no certainty. Um, This is what Laurie argues, that like, when we're thinking about if, if I want to be certain of something that happens in the future, I really can't do that because I don't know how it's going to impact me. I don't know what it's going to do to my brain because it's going to change my experience of the world. Um, okay, so if we return to the conceptual problem, um, we, can, we, can look at that, we can look at the problem of conceiving other minds as being impossible to overcome because... We can't, we can't escape subjective experience. Um, so really, all that I can ever understand is what I've experienced in the present moment and maybe in the past, but I guess it's a bit less clear what happened in the past because I will always understand the past through the present, uh, through, through I, I guess, the lens that I have right now. Um, Maybe there are some ways that the past will make me feel, which never changes. But I guess like um, my understanding of the person that I am now, I feel like that is always changing. Um, And I feel like someone would have a challenging time trying to convince me that 
their identity was this rock solid thing that never fluctuated and wasn't kind of moving and responding to different um things so yeah um i think the conceptual problem really challenges really confuses me because i think that it, i think that it's a really strong problem i don't know how well we're able to conceive of a mind outside of our own is it even possible to is it possible to understand something that isn't through our own lens um like is it possible because when we're thinking about another person's mind i believe that we can only do that through our own mind and so obviously it's going to have our own subjective i don't know preferences put on it it's going to have my kind of way of interpreting the world put on it so that other person's mind is going to be tainted by my mind um yeah so i i think the the conceptual problem is a real challenge in terms of like how much i'm actually able to think about what another person might be um what another person's experience what another person's mind might actually look like i don't i don't i don't really know what yeah I, that like it's so it's so it's such a demanding question that um yeah i think i think that it kind of but okay so i think that it's only i think the conceptual problem really is only a challenge if what we're looking to do is completely and perfectly recreate another person's experience um because i think that's impossible i don't think i can ever know what anything was like for anyone what i don't i don't think i can recreate anyone's experience perfectly that means my like your embodied experience I don't think that I can experience your embodied experience. Maybe I can go through the same circumstances, but because I'm me and because my mind is the way it is, it's it's going to even if the differences are very slight, I don't think I'm going to have the perfect I'm I'm never going to be able to perfectly recreate your experience. Um and if if that is the threshold that we are aiming for so if if we want to say that um that um we will only have justified belief in another person's we will only be able to construct we will only be able to conceive of another person's mind if we can perfectly recreate it if that are the standards if that is the standard then i think that's impossible um but i don't think it's a fair question so i think we can kind of kick the conceptual problem in the shins a little bit um because yeah it's asking something that i think is impossible um but that being said there are some things that might help like vr um vr is going to grant us a kind of access to perspectives which we've never had before um again go and listen to the previous episode we talk about vr um yeah vr i guess long story short um vr is going to give us access or already does give us access to experiences which aren't our own in a way that maybe other mediums don't so like i guess vr with headphones gives you like a visual and uh oral a u r a l um recreation of gives you an yeah visual and oral recreation of things which is pretty accurate i guess um and is only going to get more and more accurate as technology advances um okay so then there's this other way of looking at the conceptual argument so this is this is another thing that supports the conceptual argument so what i mean by supports is that um if something supports the conceptual argument it says that this the conceptual argument is a massive problem that we can't conceive of other minds at all that it doesn't make sense for us so there's this guy wittgenstein wittgenstein i don't know um he's a philosopher he taught at cambridge for a while um and then he died pretty young oops um I didn't say oops like oops he died young I said oops like oops I hit the microphone um uh yeah and Wittgenstein 
had this idea of a private language. And I guess in hermeneutics, which is the philosophy of interpretation, um, many, many people believe that what is so special about conscious, about human, about being human is that we have language to inform our experience. Um, And that's also one thing that makes us very different from other living things. Um, Sure, other living things have complex language systems, but um, I'm not, I don't think, I don't think there's anything that compares with the kind of diversity and richness of human communication. Um, And yeah, like, I I guess I'm not sure they have the kind of flexibility that we have, like, you know, you can add, you can make new words up, you can hyphenate things. um, Yeah, whatever. Then Wittgenstein comes along and he says, yeah, cool, whatever, language is cool, humans are cool. But we, we don't, we run into a problem individually because our definition, what any, any word means for us is what any word means for us and only us. So we have a kind of private language. Um, we have access like when I think of the word uh, tree, and you think of the word tree, sure, maybe, maybe at its core we're both thinking of the same thing. Maybe there are certain criteria, like it has to have leaves. Maybe, no, no, no. Okay, maybe not. Maybe it just has to be some wooden thing coming up from the ground. Um, but then maybe you could say no, it doesn't. Like, what if it's an artistic tree and it's made from fucking carbon fiber or something? Um, what if it's painted? And then there's no wood at all. But like, what if it just has to resemble, you know, the kind of familiar shape of a tree? But then you can keep going further. You can say, what's the familiar shape of a tree? Like, is it a tree if it's just in its little kind of spore, like form on the ground? Like, um, if it's just a budding flower, is it a tree yet? Um, so like this language is essentially... Um, and I guess this is what Derrida, um, who's another kind of influential his French that guy um he uh yeah he like had this idea of deconstruction that um I guess yeah at its core language is very unstable um but anyway turning back to Wittgenstein's private language argument Wittgenstein would say in response to the conceptual problem that um we can never know what what anyone else is actually what they are really thinking um so when I say tree, and I'm... Okay, so like, if I say, hey, listener, think of a fucking tree. Um, and you're like, oh, cool, Alex, man. Like, I've got an idea of a tree. I... And then I say, hey, describe it to me. Um, I... Maybe I can paint an image in my head, but like, I won't have perfect access to the private language in your head, which allows you to have the image of the tree in your head. Um yeah. So that that's Wittgenstein's private language argument. Um, then there's this response to all of these things. Um, so all of Wittgenstein, the private language argument, and Laurie Paul's transformative experience, both of those things are talking about subjectivity. So they suggest that the reason why, or the, they would suggest that the reason why we can't answer the conceptual question, that is... Um, the problem of being able to actually conceive of another mind, create in our in our own head an understanding of what an other mind would look like. The reason why we can't do that is because um, we're bound by our subjective experience. Um, but someone came up with the idea, as maybe some of you have, um, the idea that what we need is to create a an objective concept of mind. Um, and now I still don't really know what that means. Um, but it's something along the lines of trying to imagine, I think, I think trying to imagine, um, a third person, um, and like trying to imagine a non-experiencing thing in your head. So if I say, imagine a person picking up a pen, doesn't matter. Don't, don't think about don't assign character traits to this person. Or even if you, whoops, even if you do, um, 
it doesn't it doesn't matter um it doesn't matter just just imagine a person a human being picking up a pen um and if you can imagine that and if i can imagine that and then if both of us can have a conversation about that and kind of compare the experiences and if at its core it seems like both of us have been able to recreate the same objective image mental image of a person picking up a pen then perhaps we can conceive of another mind because i can I know what it I know what it's like to think about a third objective person picking up a pen. You know what it's like. So therefore like I don't know, you've got a mind. I've got a mind, you've got a mind. We can both do the same thing. That kind of sounds similar to the argument from analogy. Um that's a bit frustrating, but yeah. Um Okay. Now, where are we up to? Okay. Um we're up to the third thing that I told you I was going to talk about. Oh no, we're at 47 minutes and I said we'd be done in half an hour. Anyway, this last bit isn't, this is a like kind of quick reply from me to both of these things. So in my essay, which I, which you should actually read, maybe it will help you. It's not a very good essay, I don't think. I wrote it, I didn't have much time. I procrastinated a lot. Um, but I think, actually, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good essay. Um, um, it's descriptive it describes all of this stuff so you should go look at it if you're interested there'll be a link uh, on my website under the writing tab there'll also be a link in the podcast notes um, yeah alex.co slash writing I think anyway the practical argument so this is where I get to this is like, like actually what I believe I think I think um, I think it's what I believe um, I think the the problem of other minds um, the problem of whether we can actually know any other people, whether we can actually know that they exist, um, it it shouldn't be a problem if we can successfully practic if we can practically successfully um, engage with the world, um, and I think that that should be that should be the kind of um, threshold. So it shouldn't be we shouldn't say that other people's we can only be justified in believing that other people experience things as i do if we can perfectly recreate their mental states because then we're all going to be solipsists and what are you, what's solipsism alex solipsism is the belief that um i can only know that i i can only ever know that i'm an experiencing agent so i, I like all of you you're not real i can never know that you're real um i can only ever know that i'm real um, so I'm alone in the world, essentially. That's what the solipsist argues. And I don't want to get to that conclusion. Um, I don't want to believe that all of you are robots. Um, I don't want all of you to believe that I'm a robot. But I think there's something dangerous in the argument from analogy. Like, um, if... Okay, wait, let me let me ask you this. If If you were hurt, if you hurt your leg on the street um, and you're lying on the pavement on the footpath on the sidewalk whatever you want to call it you're lying there and strangers are walking past you are you comfortable with those strangers not doing anything not helping you because they're not justified in believing that you're a real experiencing agent the way they are um and also like are you comfortable in saying that it's fair enough that they're not helping because you can't be sure that they experience things the way you do that they are real the way you are um if your answer to that question is yes so you you think that people are justified in believing that no that like that it doesn't the people wouldn't have to help you if you're injured on the street then i don't really know what to say to you i think like um i mean if you think that people don't have to help you because they aren't real um i don't know i think we like, I would just say that we have very different understandings of, like, the world. Um, like, very, very different. And, like, maybe, like, send me an email and we, we can talk about it. Maybe we should have a phone call or Skype or something. I feel like that's a pretty serious, pretty serious, serious difference in worldview. Anyway, um, I imagine that, like, many, most people would be like, yeah, people should help me. Um, and if that's your answer, then... On practical terms, I think we have to accept that other people are real and that other minds are real. Um, yeah, so that 
essentially, I kind of, I go into more detail in the essay about the practical argument, but I guess that is what the argument suggests. Um, successful engagement with the world relies on an acceptance that, or relies on us being justified in believing that other people are real and that other minds are actually out there experiencing things the way we do. Because if we, if we don't believe that, um, I think, yeah, like we might be, we might live in a world where people don't help others because they don't believe that they're real. Um, and in fact, you know what, maybe that's actually kind of the world that we live in today. Um, Peter Singer, who I keep returning to, um, I guess he's been a very influential philosopher for me. He believes that one of the reasons why people don't give to charities and stuff is because, um, the people who are, who the charities, um, are helping aren't on their doorstep. Um, they're really far away. And I guess one thing that, yeah, one conclusion that I reached at the end of last, the end of the last episode was that, um, yeah, like it seems like being exposed to things, um, being shown things, experiencing things for yourself makes them real for you. Um, and yeah, that's also what Laurie Paul talks about. And that's what I said in, when I explained her philosophy earlier. Um, the transformative experience. We can only know things when we've... I guess we can only truly, truly, truly know what things are going to be for, be like for us when we experience them. Um, so yeah, I, I, hope, I hope that was interesting. This is a really interesting question for me. Um, please send me a message. Um, please let me know what you think. Please let me know if you enjoyed listening. Um, just yeah, reach out, say hey. Um, anyway, uh, I hope I hope your life's good. I hope it's really good. I hope you think other people are real now. Um, I hope you're gonna help the stranger on the street with the hurt leg. Um, anyway, goodbye. I love you all. Sorry for saying it was gonna be thirty minutes, and now it's fifty-three. Um, anyway, yeah, support the podcast, please, please, please. Go on Patreon. Um, that's all. And leave me a review on iTunes, you know? Yeah, that'll be good. Um, anyway, I love you. Goodbye.